Welcome, everybody, to episode 31 of Generation Jihad. I almost forgot the title there of our podcast there, Bill. I kind of stumbled. How you doing? I'm here. This is Tom Jocelyn, and I'm again here this week with Bill Rojo, my longtime comrade in arms. Bill, say hi to the audience. Hey, everyone. It's a for, obviously a forgetful week, Tom. Yeah, I like using comrade because if you actually know us, you realize that uh, I don't consider anybody my comrade. It comes from the old, obviously, the old Russian and sort of Soviet notion of uh, comrades, but uh, it's a funny way of introducing you, I think, anyway. Um, you're not a commie, right, Bill? No. Uh, not lately, no. No, definitely not. Um, so this week we're going to do a little bit of an abbreviated version of the podcast, uh, mainly because we're working on upcoming episodes and we're both a little tired of uh, recording ourselves and talking to ourselves about jihadism. But we're going to soldier through because there's some news events to talk about. Um, the first one being this, uh, the death of Hassam Abdul Rauf in Afghanistan. He was a senior Al Qaeda leader. The Afghans just recently announced that he was killed in the raid in Ghazni province. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about Rauf uh, throughout this podcast because he's an interesting character for a lot of reasons. Um, Bill, why don't we start off by I'll, I'll, let's talk a little bit about Ghazni province before we get to Rauf uh, specifically because we've just been covering this for so many years and. Sort of the minimalists who have tried to sort of downplay Al Qaeda's presence in Afghanistan have a hard time, I think, explaining Ghazni, right? Yeah, absolutely, Tom. Yeah, this it's it's funny when this report came out about Rove, and I'm not trying to jump ahead here. Obviously, he's killed in Ghazni province, and he's killed in a district uh, known as Andar, and uh, so. I immediately shrug my shoulders and go, of course he was. Uh, Tom, you and I have been tracking this, Al-Qaeda's presence in Afghanistan for well over a decade. Um, And I think I've looked back and we've seen reports on us noting how Al-Qaeda was consolidating its position in places like Ghazni and Paktika and Paktia and Kunar and other uh, other provinces, obviously. Um, Ghazni has been a major one. And Andar, look, this is a district that's been under Taliban control, I believe for five or six years now. Wow, I mean, complete, long, huh? yeah, complete Taliban control. And Al Qaeda has had a significant presence there. There's been numerous raids by um, Resolute Support's predecessor, which was the was ISAF. Um, I didn't go back and look, but I know there were dozens of raids against Al Qaeda just in in Ghazni province alone. We've seen all kinds of reports about senior al-Qaeda leaders moving in and out of Ghazni. Ghazni, of course, is one of several provinces from Osama bin Laden's files, and you could speak the, the best about this, Tom, um, where he states that it's a it's a good place for us to relocate to avoid drone strikes in pa- Pakistan. That's how, how, you know, that was true, what, in 2010-11, and it's probably true today. Yes, the U.S. killed a senior or not the U.S. actually, this is the Afghan security for the, the NDS or the National Directorate of Security, which is basically like a- Afghanistan's CIA and FBI all rolled up into one. Um, they conducted the raid probably with U.S. Uh, support um, in the background and, and killed him. But for every uh, you know guy like him, there's been numerous ones moving in and out of the area and operating in the area. Yeah, I think what's what's interesting about Ghazni when I was looking back through our reporting on it and the details on it is just how Ghazni has evolved over time. Basically, every iteration of Al Qaeda that we covered in Afghanistan has been there. Um, you know, right through the current iteration of Al Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent. Of course, the Afghans claim to have raided a warehouse that was being used by AQIS to funnel explosives to the Taliban for attacks on cities throughout Afghanistan. Um, there's definitely a facilitation network there beyond that reporting. You can tell that from just various pieces of evidence. Um, you know, I, I, I'm being a little bit, um, 
sarcastic here, but I'm willing to bet there are more Al-Qaeda guys in Ghazni than the actual total U.S. estimate for Al-Qaeda in all of Afghanistan. What do you bet, Bill? Yeah, Tom, I, exactly. And that's kind of what I was alluding to and when, when I was talking about it before. There's more guys moving in and out of Ghazni than just the, the occasional one that we kill. And yeah, Tom, I mean, you know, so that estimates what, around two to 300, uh, depending on who you talk to and when. Yeah, I mean, if it's... It, if it's even to, if it's equal to it, if it's a little less or a little more, none of those would shock me. But Al-Qaeda definitely has a significant presence there. You don't get an individual like um, like Raouf uh, based in Ghazni without them Al-Qaeda having a network. Um, yeah, and we're not going to go off on this again, of course, because we keep going. We keep talking about it. But, you know, the the estimates of Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, I mean, if, if you go to like the local carnival or fair and you have to guess the number of gumballs in a fishbowl, that's more scientific than whatever this <laughs> estimate is for Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, right? I mean, you know, so and we've, we've kind of gone off on that uh, ad nauseum. We don't need to do it again here. But, you know, what's interesting about this guy is, you know, so – Let's, we can flog the State Department again, I guess, here, you know, for the sort of the servile diplomacy with the Taliban. You know, this deal that was signed on February 29th in Doha, the whole idea was that the, you know, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Zalmay Khalilzad were going to sell us on the Taliban's counterterrorism assurances. They made a big push along those regards. I haven't seen a peep out of um, the State Department objecting to this, saying, hey, you know, what gives? Taliban, you're supposed to supposed to be good boys now with us when it comes to al-Qaeda, and here's Hassan Abdul Rauf in your in your neck of the woods in Ghazni, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, look the the entire logic of the U.S. government of, about Al Qaeda's presence in Afghanistan has just been absurd for what the last decade now. And I I just don't where where is Pompeo who promised that the Taliban was going to destroy Al Qaeda um, the, the one day after signing its withdrawal deal with the Taliban? Where's um, Zalmay Khalizade the the, the special representative for Afghanistan um, reconciliation, who's told us that the Taliban is adhering to the deal and they want peace and this is the best pass forward and we can rely on them as a, as a, uh, a counterterrorism partner. When you have someone like Raouf, who, look, and he's not a local Al-Qaeda guy or something like that. He's the head of Al-Qaeda's propaganda network, which is used to inspire and direct attacks across the globe, both locally and in, in its, its branches and across the globe. He is Al-Qaeda, as central as Al-Qaeda central gets. This guy is sheltering in Ghazni and not a peep out of the U.S. government other than to say it's a great victory, even though the U.S. government was just recently saying there's only one senior leader. Well, you're, get, you're getting ahead of us Sorry. here now. I'm yeah. going to get to that because I'm going to get to the, that's the second <laughs> that's a second flogging. So the first flogging was the State Department. The second flogging is for the National Counterterrorism Center because yeah. Christopher Miller now heads it. You know, we were critical in a previous episode of the podcast of Christopher Miller. We had an op-ed on September 10th of this year, basically saying Ayman al-Zawahiri is the only Al-Qaeda, he's the sole ideological leader of Al-Qaeda remaining. That's his word, sole ideological leader. We point out he's not the sole leader, he's not the sole ideological leader, and he's not just an ideological leader. So that, that three-word phrase is actually wrong anywhere you, any way you want to cut it, um, which gets back to my whole gumballs and a fishbowl routine. Um, but... You know, the point is that this didn't make any sense to say this. And now it's funny to watch Christopher Miller after uh, Rauf is killed and he confirms Rauf's killing. He says, see, this is a major setback and a major strategic blow for, you know, 
Al-Qaeda. Well, wait a minute. You were just telling us, you know, last month that there's only one Al-Qaeda guy left that we had to worry about, one sole ideological leader. Here's a guy who was clearly playing an ideological role as the head of Asahab, the media outfit, media shop for Al-Qaeda, a guy who was close to Zawahiri. And you can look back at his writings. There's, they're, you know, thoroughly ideological all the way back to 2005, which I'm going to get to in a second. And, you know, he clearly is a guy who was part of the Al-Qaeda chain of command. And now you, you go from saying there's only one Al-Qaeda guy left we have to worry about, Ayman al-Zawahiri, to, hey, we killed, this other guy got killed and he was so important that this is a major, major setback for the group. I mean, it's just the, the basic inconsistencies there are just sort of laughable, I think, you know? Yeah, I agree, Tom. I mean, it's, it's, I can't take the logic of all this. And, and I don't know what's more um, disappointing, worrisome, disgusting about all this, that the U.S. government has done this for, uh, has basically gamed its intelligence for 10 years on, on, on what al-Qaeda is, how, you know, what its numbers are in Afghanistan, or that our press has allowed this to continue. There is zero questioning um, about this. The, the press's first question to the U.S. to 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 uh, Miller and others should have been. Wait, I thought you just told us there was only in an op-ed to the Washington Post, no less, just said that there was only one senior leader slash ideological leader, and now you just are touting the killing of one. But there has been zero curiosity on all of this from the press. I hate to sit here and you know um, and do a, let me you know bash the press for its poor reporting, but this is. This is just the, the perfect case of it. You know, the press has checked out when it's come to years ago, um, when it's come to accurately reporting and investigating Al-Qaeda. And it's it's disgusting, frankly. Well, I mean, the thing is there is that, you know, because it, there's, there's sort of, a, you know, the press, the media, and there's a lot of desire to question the U.S. government, what the U.S. government's doing and its condu- conduct of the war fighting. But it's funny that that questioning doesn't extend to this issue. You know, the fact that um, after, you know, so the Afghans kill Rauf and the National Counterterrorism Zone is trumping that trumpeting this. Rauf is a guy who moved to Afghanistan in the 1980s and Pakistan, you know, Afghanistan, Pakistan, in the 1980s. He's been there ever since, either in Pakistan or Afghanistan. And, you know, he's been somebody who's not he's not an unknown guy. He was a guy who was very well known if you're just paying attention to Al Qaeda's literature and their videos and everything they're putting out. Um, they even reintroduced him on video in 2013, just to make, make it remind everybody he was around, but let's go through this a little bit here. I mean, this isn't a guy who, um, sort of popped up out of nowhere. As you said, Bill, he was Al Qaeda as Al Qaeda they come. And, you know, so I I was looking through our files and our sort of collections on this guy and sort of what we know about him. And it's interesting. I mean, he was the editor of the Vanguard. Well, first of all, let's back up for a second. So he, he initially joins, according to the Al Qaeda biography for him. He initially joins uh, Maktab al-Kidmat, which was Abdul Azam's shop when bin Laden worked with Azam on this. And then, of course, Azam is killed under mysterious circumstances in 1989. And basically, bin Laden reconfigures the operation sort of um, and, and poaches from it to sort of uh, you know, launch al-Qaeda or folds it into his al-Qaeda, I should say. Um, and, you know, so this guy, Rauf, goes all the way back then. He was playing an administrative and a finance or treasury role for Maktab al-Kidmat all the way back in the 1980s. He becomes uh, part of the founding generation of Al-Qaeda, you know, uh, serves him very early on. So he was close to Zawahiri and bin Laden. Um, there's, you know, there's some details on his activities throughout the 1990s, not a lot. But where he really gets prominent again for us from our perspective is in 2005, 
because he's the editor in chief of the Vanguards of the Coruscant, the Vanguards of the Horasan magazine, which was the Al Qaeda flagship publication for the region at the time. And they launched this in 2005, and he um, he is announced as the editor for Vanguards of the Horasan magazine. And he has in the inaugural issue he has an article uh, titled "We Won a Decisive Round." And it's um, praising, lauding the 7-7 bombings in London. And he says that this is a, you know, he basically portrays this as a victory for all of Islam against the UK because the UK is supposedly, um, you know, at war with all of Islam, which is, of course, a standard motif in Al-Qaeda and Islamic State propaganda. But here's a guy who's, who's all the way back in 2005 is lauding, you know, the, an attack in the West. You can't say that he... Um, wasn't a threat to the West when he was openly lauding such attacks and openly praising them and saying that this is the way to go. And he, um, you know, he, he becomes the, the uh, he is the editor-in-chief of Van, the Vanguards of the Horizon, and he publishes, you know, a number of issues for that and has a, a lot of different uh, writings in there. But, you know, one of the things, Bill, I saw too, which I thought was interesting, and this, this will offend any of the Taliban apologists in our audience, um, you know, he wasn't just featured, of course, throughout all the Al-Qaeda propaganda that he um, oversaw. He was also featured in Taliban propaganda right uh al samud magazine uh for i think it's issues two through six i think it was something like that where he what he did was he and this is circa 2006 he had a study that he put together based on press clippings showing sort of how the the war in afghanistan was draining the u.s and was going to lead to the demise of the u.s and that the u.s was losing this war and this was gonna be a big victory for the mujahideen and the taliban uh you know printed printed this across multiple issues of samud uh, you know, very interesting observation there for anybody who wants to, you know, sort of play disconnect the dots on the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. You know, here's a guy who was very senior in Al-Qaeda's media organ at the time. He, I don't think he was the propaganda chief at the time, but he certainly was close to the top. Later, it becomes a total, total chief. And he's overseeing the flagship publication in the region for Al-Qaeda, and he's being featured in the Taliban's propaganda. Yeah. You know, and Tom, if we, if we recall, uh, the Taliban will tell us that Al-Qaeda doesn't even exist in Afghanistan. They left Afghanistan after the U.S. invaded um, post-9-11. Um, and yet the Taliban's publishing him in, in Al-Samud is one of their premier magazines for, for the Taliban. Uh, you know, by the way, and this just popped into my head as we were talking and as you were going through. Um, and I'm just going to backtrack a little. I apologize. But Ghazni province, um, one of the earliest uh, we could detect al-Qaeda in was Afa Siddiqui. She was captured in Ghazni province in two, 2008. And in uh, case our audience needs to re- remember who Afa Siddiqui is. Afia, yeah. Afia Siddiqui. Afia yeah. Siddiqui. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, she, she was – she's a Pakistani citizen who was in the United States and taking – she was plotting, basically plotting, uh, they believe, uh, at least according to her um, charges, uh, the – um, plotting chemical attacks and attacks on the United States. So she was captured in Ghazni um, by, I believe, Afghan security forces. So that's how far back this goes. We can we can track Al Qaeda back in into Ghazni province back all the way back to two thousand and eight. Yeah. Now just to back to Raouf here and his writing. Yeah, sure. So so this uh, you know this thing that the um, Taliban excerpted in their magazine was uh, something he wrote called a victory of Islam study. Um, and he was, at the time, he was definitely a member of the media committee for Al-Qaeda. He was, um, no doubt he was a senior figure. If not, he wasn't number one in the media arm at the time, as far as we can tell. 
Um, but, you know, he was trumpeting the Taliban's success on the battlefield, and he was saying that, you know, eventually the U.S. is going to be defeated here, and the, return, the, the Taliban's Islamic State will rise once again. Now, of course, this is before, not to be confused with ISIS or the Islamic State that centered in Iraq and Syria, which grew and then mushroomed into its own independent sort of entity and organization, the would-be caliphate. Um, this is, you know, the Taliban's Islamic State, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. He was trumping this all the way back in 2006 to say this is what Al-Qaeda and the Taliban are fighting for. And it's just striking to me, again, to see how the U.S. and just how this, this war has been, the utter confusion and, and lack of leadership when it came to Afghanistan, is that you still have the U.S. sort of pretending that the, the political goal of the Taliban is something other than the return of the Islamic Emirate. When they've announced this over and over again, and you know, Al Qaeda's announced it over and over again, and the Taliban has promoted Al Qaeda announcing it over and over again, you know, their literature, you know, and somehow we're going to pretend like that none of that exists and that they're going to sort of, you know, uh, stand down from their political goals. Of course, there's no evidence of that, and that's part of the reason why we've been critical of the the talks with the Taliban is that, you know, you have to have some evidence that that the other side is willing to compromise on on what they're all about. And there's no, there's no evidence the insurgents are willing to compromise on that, which is a sort of the core, the real core reason for the war and the real core reason for why it is an endless war because they haven't late, they haven't given up their political goals. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. I mean, th- and you know, the reason for this and the reason for this past decade of, and we, I know we've discussed this as ad nauseum is Al Qaeda has to be dead. It has to be, you know, minimal. It has to, have no ties to the Taliban for the U.S. to leave because the U.S. it's politically impossible for the United States uh, for a president to leave Afghanistan while Al Qaeda, the Taliban Al Qaeda tie endures. So they have to lie about all this, and that's I, I, I hate to use that word. They're, it's beyond deceiving. They're lying about it, and they have to hide this. And even when someone like Roof is killed, and Roof, you know, as you noted, I mean, he's his writings. He, he, he again, he's as Al Qaeda as Al Qaeda gets. And when he's sheltering with the Taliban, that should be the point when we look at this deal and go, hey, wait, maybe something's not right here. But no one has done that because the reality is, is withdrawing from Afghanistan is far more important than dealing with the uncomfortable truths that exist about the Taliban and the Taliban Al Qaeda relationship to this day. Well, that's true, but you can withdraw, as we've said. Uh, oh, yes, over absolutely. Again. You withdraw without, without absolving the Taliban. That's what's so ridiculous right. about this. But, right? Tom, you know, that's yeah. so on Washington. We need yeah, an excuse. We need cover. We need yeah. a, a, a diplomatic hero like Zalmay Khalizad. And we need all of that. That's required for the U.S. to leave, not just do, you know, pull up and do what you want to do, but we need the we need the, the, the D.C. dog and pony show to roll through Afghanistan in order to justify this so it can look like we did the right thing on the way out the door. And make no mistake, I think as we all seen the, uh, with the fighting over the last couple of weeks, much of Afghanistan is going to go under the Taliban control very quickly. Yeah, no, they, they're, I mean, I noticed we talked about this too, I don't want to get too sidetracked from our oof here, but they, uh, you know, the Washington Post finally recognized that the Taliban is fighting throughout Afghanistan on the offensive there. I don't know how many years ago you first wrote that up, Bill, but it's sort right. of like, you know, okay, great job, guys. You finally yeah. caught on that uh, the Taliban is waging a prolific insurgency throughout all of Afghanistan. And uh, yeah, there's no no sign of peace anywhere. Yeah, when I started tracking control of uh, or Taliban control and contested districts throughout Afghanistan, probably like five, six years ago now, um, that's when I started to really notice where everything was, how it was all going. And that's when I, I mean, you know, that's how far behind the curve 
And I mean, how can you be a, a major news organization and just not notice this? And they actually have people on the ground. They have an office in, in Kabul. And well, anyway, here we are. So, you know, Rauf, again, you know, as he, he was as Al-Qaeda as Al-Qaeda to come. By the way, one of our, a uh, couple of our listeners has said we complain a lot in the podcast. Yeah, that's true. We, we, I cop to that. You cop to that, right? We Absolutely. Yeah. yeah uh, we definitely, we're, this is sort of that's, like It's a, because I hate losing, Tom. That's yeah. I mean, I the, po- the, the episodes with just you and me really are sort of like a therapy session, really, for us to just sort of get out our, <laughs> our, air our grievances, I guess, against everybody, right. you know? So, uh, no, uh, joking just a little bit, but. Um, so Rauf, you know, again, advertising you know, that he was more, he's about as Al Qaeda as they come, you know, I think it was in 2007, an issue of Vanguard's of the Khorasan magazine. He, um, they did an interview with him in which he, he was the main spokesman in that magazine to praise the September 11th attacks. Um, you know, and was declaring this as a major victory against the U S of course, this is, you know, at a time when the Taliban had trumpeting his, his, other works in its magazine, you know, and this is a guy who was very out there loudly and proudly sort of proclaiming his, uh, how much of a success and how, how righteous 9-11 was. And in fact, some of what he wrote about were in, in his writings were defense of killing civilians and criticizing those who said that Al-Qaeda didn't have the right to kill civilians. He defended that in, in what he said and what he wrote. And I just looking through a couple other points about him, um, here. One is that he was also, you know, sometimes he was quoted in Inspire magazine, which was put out by AQAP. Um, he was sort of set alongside other senior Al Qaeda leaders there, um, in, in terms of what they excerpted for the readers. Um, you know, he's, he put out different audio statements, um, discussing the Arab uprisings, for example, criticizing Islamic state that got ISIS, you know, um, one of the interesting things about the rivalry between ISIS and Al Qaeda is you can tell how important somebody is within Al Qaeda if if ISIS puts its rhetorical puts them in the rhetorical crosshairs, and Rauf was a guy who the ISIS went after rhetorically. Um, you know, this is a guy who they they had a video earlier this year um, that really sort of I think it came out of um, the Yemen so called province of ISIS, which outlined their ideological objections to Al Qaeda and and their other sort of uh, disagreements. And Rauf was one of the guys who was blasted in, in that video by ISIS. So that, that's, that's of course, important. Um, you know, now, the other thing about him that um, is interesting here is that, you know, earlier this year, the UN put out a report and uh, we had Edmund Fitton Brown on, who runs the UN Security Council's monitoring team for Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and ISIS. And according to this monitoring team report, um, Rauf was one of the, the Al-Qaeda officials who met with the Taliban to discuss the so-called peace talks in Doha, really the withdrawal deal that came out of Doha between the U.S. and the Taliban. And so this is a guy who was meeting with, according to this U.N. report, was meeting with the Taliban to discuss this deal between the U.S. and the Taliban. And this was not, you know, there were a series of meetings. There were meetings that documented this U.N. report. There was intelligence. Of course, we can't verify because we don't see what the underlying intelligence is, but you can listen to Edmund Fitton Brown and you can, you can tell just how knowledgeable and how much of an expert he is. Um, you had meetings with um, Zawahiri and the Haqqanis, who were part of the Taliban. You had um, meetings with um, Hamza bin Laden before he was killed and the Taliban officials where they were assuring him. And you had Raouf, who was just killed, was part of an al-Qaeda delegation who was meeting with the Taliban during the last year or so in the run-up to this uh, deal. And there were several other 
al-Qaeda guys named in the UN report who were part of this meeting with the Taliban. You had Ahmed al-Qatari, you had Sheikh Abdul Rahman, you had Abu Osman. Of course, all these guys, right, they all show you that al-Qaeda isn't down to just one sole yeah. remaining guy, right? You know? Yeah, Tom, these are, these are top-tier al-Qaeda leaders, long-standing leaders. I mean, it's where I go back. How could Miller have made that statement? This is just public information, something the director of the national counterterrorism should, should know it's maddening. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what, that's what ultimately gets, gets to the heart of here is that, you know, it doesn't take much scratching around or looking around to see, um, that you can find other Al Qaeda leaders who are still in the game globally, uh, who are veterans. And, you know, we, we and it's interesting. I was looking back when we criticized Miller's, uh, column in the Washington post, the op-ed in the Washington post, when she identified Zawahiri as the sole remaining ideological leader of Al Qaeda. Um, we named Rauf as one of the guys who was, yeah. you know, as one of the guys who right. was an example of why that was wrong, you know. And now, of course, Rauf is killed, and Miller's saying, "Oh, ta-da!" You know, we had this major success in in, in killing him. Well, wait a minute, you know. So, uh, I mean, the logical contradiction there, the, the basic problem, the basic, uh, you know, sort of lack of real sort of empiricism and, and sort of scientific thinking there is really something to behold. But that's because, as we've talked about in this podcast, and we're going to talk about in future episodes, um, we're going to talk about again. I mean. What happens is the U.S. is, you know, is just really been captured by this idea that we need to just sort of pivot toward great power competition. And so therefore, um, you know, basically we can write off the jihadis and we're just going to look for any arguments at hand we can come up with to downplay the jihadis and sort of dismiss them. And, and our, our point, again, is you can debate what to do policy-wise. You know, I quite frankly, we're pretty ambivalent to cynical at this point on, on any of the different recommendations that are out there and sort of, you know, half-heartedly would endorse, you know, an ongoing presence in Afghanistan only because, you know, the Taliban is going to take over much of the country and we don't think that that's a, a great a great great outcome here. Now, it doesn't mean we, we want to keep the U.S. there indefinitely. Of course not. And, and you know, we can understand why people want to get out. And that's why anything we say in, in, along those lines is half-hearted. But that shouldn't lead you to, to an a- inaccurate, clearly fictitious erroneous model of al-Qaeda, right? Whatever we decide policy-wise, there needs to be a bifurcation between, you know, how you view this organization now in 2020 and what the level of threat is and what you're, and what you're going to do about it. You shouldn't, you know, basically, you shouldn't basically take your policy desires and read into it to play it down. And what's interesting about all this, I think, is it exposes something you and I both talked about. You know, so you have certain people who like to say that, um, you know, some people who are sort of more inclined to promote military action or warmongers or anything like that, you know, somebody who's more, more quote unquote hawkish, the way the press would put it, right? That they want to inflate Al-Qaeda or inflate these groups to justify their sort of hawkish instincts. And the, quite frankly, the opposite is true more often than not, as far as you and I are concerned. It's the people who are really the dovish on all this, who sort of, you know, see only what they want to see uh, on, on what's going on to justify that their views in terms of either getting the U.S. out of fighting them or um, just sort of, you know, moving on. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. I mean, it, it really is mind boggling, you know, when you hear that just because you and I are um, 
explaining what the Taliban al-Qaeda threat is, explaining that al-Qaeda has more than one leader, explaining that it has a global network. Yeah, that somehow makes us hawkish, right? That I mean, makes us warmongers. Yeah. All well, we're I, doing... The warmongers thing, I don't even get as much. We talked yeah. about this before. It's more hawkish is the word I... Hawkish. It's, fun, sure. it's, a fun, it's funny the word I... That's the word the press likes to use. Journalists like to use the word hawkish, right? Hawkish. But we all know what they mean. Yeah, we right. Know. I mean, it's just so funny, you know, because, yeah. I mean, what, I don't know what the hell is hawkish about fighting al-Qaeda, but um, in any, in any uh, event... Right, exactly. Know. And but, yet... You know, right. I mean, like, fine. You know, how you want to set your policy to deal with that threat, I leave that to my betters. I just like to accurately describe what the threat is. Uh, you know, I, I try not to get too far. Yeah, into all, all I would say is I, I, I differ a little bit there. I don't think there are betters to decide well, policy at this point. I think it's <laughs> basically, I, I listen, I, the point is, is that. I Should I say I wish I could defer to yeah, betters? Yeah, I mean, I, I basically, I, I understand why people want out of all this. I mean, I get it, you know. I mean, I want all out of all this but the problem is that you know this guy's killing rose killing is a good example it should you know the press should be asking questions here you know how is it the national the head of the national counterterrorism center said there's only one guy left that you have to worry about in al-qaeda and now he's trumpeting the killing of another guy you know and how many other guys are there oh well that's an interesting conversation because now we can start listing dozens of other guys who we should be thinking about uh who are still in the game for al-qaeda senior leadership um and, the lack know, of there's just no accountability in any of this, Tom. And no, that's, there that's, isn't. There that's isn't. ultimately that, that's, what frustrates you. And I. Well, you know that 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 model of Zawahiri is the last guy standing. Remember, we we dealt with that back in the days with John Brennan. Remember that was put yeah, out absolutely. when John, John yeah. Brennan and people at Odie and I, you know, were putting out that idea, you know, years ago. And we, uh, I think it was Marie Harf, who was the ODNI yes. spokesperson at the time, was saying that basically Zawahiri. That was years ago. Yeah, and she actually responded to us well she yeah, she was very yeah she was we we posted her reply which yeah we were that. yeah exactly. we didn't want to beat up on marie harf that wasn't the idea the point is that 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 assessment was clearly coming from people in the u.s government it wasn't her assessment it was coming from she was right. the spokesperson who was repeating the assessment coming from the u.s government and here we have the same the same freaking model years later there's still somebody yeah. it's it's like again this gets back to the sticky the sticky estimate, right? In economics, you have sticky prices where supply and demand change, and yet the price doesn't move, right? And it's a sticky price. You know, this is a sticky estimate of Al Qaeda that somehow has lingered on here in, in U.S. government uh, sort of corridors all these times, and that's why I say, you know, look, you know, wander up to the fishbowl and guess the number of gumballs in there. You get a better guess. That's better. That's a better methodology than whatever's cooking the books on this Al Qaeda estimates. <laughs> these Al Qaeda estimates, right? Yeah, um, we'd, we'd probably know the number is more than one just off the bat, right? Tom? Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, and, 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 and you don't have to, you know, physically count all the gumballs to know that there's more than one gumball in the, in the fishbowl, exactly. you know? Exactly. You know? Um, so, so look, I mean, the other thing that Miller said in his op-ed, um, or I'm sorry, what he said when he confirmed Rove's killing was that, you know, that this is, you know, basically Al-Qaeda is uh, suffered a number of strategic losses, right? That stood out to me, Bill. Uh, I mean, you know, you just have you have no evidence that the Taliban is broken with Al Qaeda, which is how this deal was pitched to us, which would be a strategic strategic problem for Al Qaeda if that happened. Absolutely, and we'd be the first to report it. It'd be a big deal. There's no evidence that that's happened. Um, you know, meanwhile, Al Qaeda's unbroken alliance with the Taliban again, is unbroken, remains intact, as the Taliban and al-Qaeda are fighting throughout Afghanistan and are on the verge of taking back large portions of the country and the U.S. is seeking to withdraw. I mean, that's a pretty big strategic win for al-Qaeda if A, its alliance with the Taliban remains unbroken, and B, the Taliban wins back much of Afghanistan. This would then mitigate 
the sort of critique in jihadi circles that 9-11 cost the Taliban its Islamic Emirate, which was the only, in jihadi terms, righteously religious, uh, righteous religious sort of entity or state on the planet at the time. You know, there was some criticism of Al-Qaeda for 9-11 because they, they, uh, they lost Afghanistan, the Taliban lost Afghanistan because of 9-11. Now, um, lo and behold, the Taliban's on the verge of taking back much of the country. And so, you know, I think again, it shows just a complete lack of understanding of these groups and and who we've been who the U.S. has been fighting all these years. To claim, on the one hand, you see that you know all this evidence of strategic setbacks for Al Qaeda, and yes, there have been setbacks, absolutely. But to say that in the in the context of when a major Al Qaeda figure who's been around for more than thirty years, more than thirty years, this guy's been around, right? He's killed in a Taliban stronghold as the Taliban is surging throughout Afghanistan, and there's no evidence the Taliban is broken with Al Qaeda. I mean, I don't know that 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 seems about as strategic to me from the jihadi's perspective as it gets in Afghanistan. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. And you know, and you could even you know, weak you and I could even make the argument that what the U.S. leaving, I mean, it almost benefits the Taliban to have lost and then fought, gone through the fire. And fought to eject the United States so it could claim it beat a superpower and reestablish its Islamic Emirate. I mean, that that in itself is just fantastic lore, fantastic propaganda for the Taliban. And by, um, you know, also with with Al Qaeda's help, it's for them as well to say, look, we helped do this. I, I just really think, you know, we can roof or it's losing Osama bin Laden or name any Al Qaeda operative that we've lost. Um, we, I'm sorry, that Al Qaeda has lost over the last decade. Yeah, I'm about to say there. Whoa, decades. whoa, whoa! What happened here? We, yeah. we must yeah, have really yeah, had yeah. a we must no, have a real turnaround no. here in terms yeah. of. I, and I'm not a commie either. <laughs> I just I was only a joke. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it, you know, the Al Qaeda. You know, it'd all be worth it if the if the Taliban can can retake its emirate. Like I said, there's just something to the. It's the lore of of of. Um, the trial by fire, they they beat, you know, they played a role. Obviously, it wasn't the Taliban when the Soviets were the defeated, but the Mujahideen defeats the superpower of the Soviet Union, and then the Taliban consolidate control locally, and then they have to eject the United States. That's just a fantastic tale for jihadists and one that will inspire many to go to Afghanistan to join the Taliban ranks or to join al-Qaeda's ranks. You know, we haven't gotten any confirmation yet from Al-Qaeda as we're recording this of Rauf's death. Um, I think they probably, you know, who knows? I mean, Seema Mar was killed in another Taliban stronghold last September, September 2019. He was the first emir of Al-Qaeda Indian subcontinent. He was probably playing another Al-Qaeda, another managerial role in Al-Qaeda at the time of his death. They didn't publicly acknowledge his death either because of what's going on with the talks with the U.S. And basically the, the, the U.S. is on the verge of leaving and they don't want to acknowledge what's happening that, oh, yeah, by the way, there are these, all these Al-Qaeda bigwigs still in Taliban strongholds. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if Rauf doesn't get a martyrdom statement or a martyrdom acknowledgement. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they, if they do, but we'll see. Um, but, you know, either way, um, what we're monitoring Al-Qaeda's telegram channels and sort of Al-Qaeda-linked social media. And there is it's interesting, right before we recorded, I saw pop up a telegram channel that is dedicated to Rauf's greatest hits. So somebody in Al-Qaeda world is putting out his videos and audios and statements and sort of a little hat tip to him saying, you know, you know, here's our, here's our fallen Amir of, in the media, media uh, uh, world. 
and let's go through everything he, he said throughout throughout the years. Um, you, you, Tom, so. real quick, and one thing I expect to see, and absolutely do not expect to see a martyrdom statement, just as we haven't for, for Asim Umar. I don't expect it for Roof. But I do expect once the United States leaves and, and Al-Qaeda is confident enough that, it, that it, there won't be any, uh, the Taliban oh, yeah. won't pay any price, that we'll see the heroes of the Khorasan or the martyrs of the Khorasan and yeah. Roof. And, they've got a and whole Asim propaganda spigot. They've got a yeah, whole propaganda spigot ready to turn on. Yeah, they've got, yeah. they're just, they're just, yeah, they've been a couple times now through some of these so-called independent link jihadi outfits. They've been advertising their operations in Afghanistan and everything. Um, you could just tell they're itching just to they're just waiting to, to, yeah. to strut their stuff. You know, they're just they're itching to say you know you know. And you know the other thing is you're going to see you're going to see U.S. assessments. Let's say the U.S. does leave next spring, spring of 2021, and then Al Qaeda turns on the propaganda spigot. Um, you know, you're going to see estimates saying that Al Qaeda has resurged in Afghanistan, reconstituted, they, yeah, reconstituted. They've come back to Afghanistan. No, 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 folks, no, no, no. Never they're, left. They're, always they're, been. They were there the whole time. You know, we've been documenting it for years. They've been there the whole time. You know, this is this is what a failure of leadership on the American side looks like. You know, is that basically after all these years, the U.S. couldn't get it right in terms of who they were even fighting in Afghanistan and who was there and what was going on. Um, so, you know, let's talk a little bit about, you had a couple things you wanted to note, Bill, on the podcast this week about the Taliban's operations. I know there were a couple of significant operations you wanted to point out. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, while the talks are going on in Afghanistan, the Taliban are basically rampaging. Doha, right? Doha. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. The talks with the Afghan, intra-Afghan talks in Doha, Qatar are occurring. The Taliban um, is just, it's stepped up its uh, its operations. Um, the United States is and and NATO and everyone else is upset because they claim that the um, Taliban agreed to a reduction in violence. Um, as you and I have uh, outlined numerous times, Tom, there is nothing in that three and a half page agreement that says that requires a reduction in violence. The only word time the word reduction actually shows up is when it talks about reducing U.S. forces in Afghanistan. Uh, I find that a little ironic. So. Um, what we had, we had the Taliban rampage in Lashkargah, which is the provincial capital of Helmand province. Obviously, this is one of the t- the key areas that the Taliban wants to take. If they could take Lashkargah, then in- all of Helmand falls and Kandahar will fall shortly behind it. Also, the also the province of Aruzgan and Nimruz would very likely fall next. So the Taliban was on a push there. The U- the Taliban was fighting um, was so successful in Lashkargah that the U.S. military actually had to launch airstrikes. Now, the agreement does say that the U.S. can come to the aid of Afghan security forces. The U.S. military has done this sparingly. Um, it did intervene in Helmand, and there was some kind of agreement that the U.S. would stop not just airstrikes against Talib- Taliban um, military operations, but the U.S. would stop night raids, um, which the night raids usually are targeted against. Al Qaeda and the Islamic State and other allied groups, the other groups that are allied with Al Qaeda. Obviously, the Islamic State, uh, Khorasan Province, is not one of allied their enemies. Um, but then there's been other attacks, um, major attacks. I mean, look, this would be major news just about anywhere, but in Afghanistan, it's just another day. In um, Nimruz Province, which borders Helmand, the Taliban killed 24 Afghan National Army soldiers captured six more when they assaulted um, a base in that province. 
the U.S. military had no response to that. In Takar province, the Taliban killed 47 policemen, captured six, and one of those policemen that were killed was the deputy chief of police for the province. This occurred in a district that is under Taliban control, or at least according to my numbers. Um, the, the, the police in Takar went into the district to launch an operation. The Taliban crushed them. They basically killed, captured, or wounded just about every policeman that came in there. Um, that to me is just such a strong indication that the Taliban do, do indeed control that district. In places like Badakhshan, which is in, up in the north, uh, far northeastern area, that's the, the province that borders China and Pakistan. Um, the, you have the governor saying that 22 of the 27 districts are in danger of falling to the Taliban. Um, ironically, in my, what my tracking of that, I have two districts that are Taliban controlled, 19 are contested. So I guess I'm off by one. I got to figure out which district it is that I'm missing. Um, so, yuck, we, and that's just a small sliver of what's happening in Afghanistan. And as I said, the U.S. military is only intervening. They did intervene today, or I believe it was last night, in Wardak province. They killed five Taliban soldiers, Taliban fighters, in an um, airstrike in Wardak. But the military is not um, intervening everywhere. They're being selective. And you had General, um, General Miller... Um, come out and say, well, we've been very reserved because we want this, this talks between the Taliban and the Afghan, uh, intra-Afghan talks to, to proceed and we don't want to interfere, even though the U.S. military has every right to defend the Afghan security forces. And by the um, way, no, we haven't heard Miller or anybody on his staff say, oh yeah, by the way, the Taliban remains in bed with Al-Qaeda and nothing, uh, the Doha yeah. deal has changed that, you know, at, at least thus far, I haven't heard anything from, no. from them, you know, I mean, you know. For you know, there, there's a certain strain of, of sort of commentary on the Afghan war on both the right and left that talks about like the U.S. military industrial complex and how that implying that that's sort of what's keeping the war in Afghanistan going or this type of thing. And I, I saw I won't name who it is, but I saw this in a column that just came out recently. I just thought to myself, that's just so not true. I mean, it, you know, the, the truth is these guys these guys are not are not invested in this fight at all at this point. They're, they've been desperately trying to get out of it for years. You know, they're just looking for a way to save face. Uh, you know, and, you know, it, this is the type of issue where the U.S. military should be should be saying, you know, here's what's going on in Ghazni, you know, where Oof was not the only guy there. And, you know, here's what the, here's what the threat is. But they can't even bring themselves to issue a press release on it. You know, yeah, Tom, I mean, look, look at what I just laid out. The U.S. military had every opportunity if it wants to escalate this war, if it wants to remain engaged, if it wants to provoke a fight. It could have intervened in every one of those cases. It was completely justified. You know, 24, 24 soldiers killed in one attack, 47 policemen, including the deputy chief of police, killed in another. And the U.S. military sat on his hands. That is not the sign of a military that is seeking to remain engaged and the military industrial contract complex that wants to stay stuck in, in Afghanistan. Miller's comments about, you know, wanting this to work so the U.S. can leave. That's the truth. That's what he wants. That's what the what resolute support, which is the the NATO command in Afghanistan. That's what U.S. forces Afghanistan, which Miller commands both units. That's what the U.S. government. The U.S. That's what CENCON wants. That's what the Department of Defense wants. They all want out out of Afghanistan. It distracts from what they think is important, which is the so-called great power competition, and they think it takes up enormous resources. It takes up Tom, as you have expertly laid out uh, numerous times, I believe both here and in your writings, 
that um, this war is in Afghanistan and elsewhere is using up a mere fraction of the resources of the Department of Defense. That's not it, a reason. It, it, to it stand. is now. It, in the past, it was a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. No. I mean, we're now. talking and, last five years. Yeah. I mean, and, and as an American taxpayer, I mean. You and I both have grace. We've the U.S. has wasted tens of billions. I mean, yes, I don't, I don't know how. I don't know how much. I don't know what the toll figure is. Just a total hundreds of billions. Yeah, a, a, stu- hundreds a stunning, a stunning amount of fraud and waste in Afghanistan. So I'm not dismissing that objection whatsoever. Um, but you know, the point is in terms of resource allocation, which is the point you're you're revisiting there. The idea that this is what's holding America back from great power competition just doesn't fly. Now you can make all sorts of other arguments against the war effort. Um, that one doesn't hold water, and that's the one. That's the one the Esper Secretary of Defense and others have sort of made publicly. And it just, to me, again, shows that that's just showing their own priorities and that they don't really um, see any any way of of winning in Afghanistan because there isn't at this point for them, um, and that they just they just want out. So yeah, yeah and look in the industrial part of the military industrial complex you know that wants to feed a war it wants to feed material bombs fighter jets tank none of that really very little other than some planes and some bombs and i mean there's very little of the industrial equation going into places like afghanistan yeah i think and, i think it's more it's, the, they're more interested in f-35 and these big contracts yeah, that they can, yeah that's, where, that's where there's a lot more waste yeah, you know sure. aircraft carriers yeah. and useless destroyers and you know bigger and Bigger submarines when they have ones that were. Oh, don't get me started on all that. Um, yeah, so I mean, my whole point in mentioning that, Tom, is that neither the military nor the industrial complex really <laughs> wants in Afghanistan. It's just not. If you want a military industrial com- complex feeding, it's reduction in NATO and things like that. That's where the that's where you'll start seeing real pushback, and you have seen it. Um, you know that's why Congress gets upset when you start talking about reducing forces in NATO because they have, you know, they have they all have interests, military contracts, things of that nature. Not so in Afghanistan. There's just very little of that. So that 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 entire argument that we wanted that not we, that the U.S. military wants to stay in Afghanistan to, to, to feed the military industrial complex. It just doesn't fly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I still see it out there. And of course it just, it, this is part of what we've critiqued in past episodes about the endless wars rhetoric is that the reason why this is endless wars is endless jihad Taliban as we just, you just expertly laid out is on the offensive and has been on the offensive since February 29th. Nothing that took place in Doha was a peace deal. It was not a peace deal. Nothing, no peace is at hand. Um, you know, that they are fighting for their Islamic Emirate after all these years and, no, and nothing has changed that. Um, you know, but here's another, talking about the U.S. military not putting out much information about what's going on in terms of Al-Qaeda. Bill, you, we're still working on trying to verify who was killed or targeted in a pair of drone strikes in Syria. Just this month, there were at least two strikes in Syria um, in Idlib province. There's some reporting on... Uh, Al-Qaeda linked social media that an Al-Qaeda veteran known as Abu Muhammad al-Sudani may have been killed. There was an earlier strike. There was an Egyptian named. I'm not really even sure at this point who was targeted or killed. And that's why I haven't written it up at Long War Journal. I'm still working on it. But, you know, the U.S. and CENTCOM put out um, a statement about the strikes, but didn't identify or explain who they were targeting or why, you know. And this is the lack of transparency on this stuff, which I think, you know, uh, critics of the so-called endless wars or critics of the, the post 9-11 conflicts have a, have a legitimate point. It's a point we, we share. Um, you know, transparency is important and it's important to, to note what it is you're doing. If you're launching, you know, expensive drone strikes against these guys in Syria, you know, you ha- I think there should be some explanation for why, you know, who it is. You know, you can't just say, well, they're Al-Qaeda and they threaten the U.S. I think there should be, needs to be some more 
sort of biographical detail given for who these guys are and why, how they fit into Al-Qaeda and why they were targeted. Yeah, and Tom, when that information isn't provided, it just feeds the narrative. The you know We've really saw this in, at the height of the U.S. drone campaign in Pakistan, particularly also in, in Yemen. So the, you know, the basically, I guess I'll call them the anti-war uh, contingent that basically tried to say every drone strikes killed civilians and there's no accountability. And, you know, I've, we've always felt that transparency was key to explain why we were doing what we were doing, who we were killing, where we were killing them, what this meant to national security. You know, that that's we, you and I have always been at the forefront. You know, yes, we the more the American public knows and understands about this war, the more there, there'll be support for it. And I think that support has dropped um, significantly is because no one is making the case for it anymore. We're launching drone strikes in um, Syria, but nobody knows against who or why. We're launching an airstrike against the Taliban in Wardak province, but not here, there, there, or there, and no one really understands why. We're trying some sort of measured response in, in Afghanistan. I mean, it's like shades of the Vietnam War, and then, and then military and political leaders sit there and wonder why there's no support for these wars and why you know the, and the endless war narrative um, starts to take hold, and it's because we we're not told what's happening. It's important to know. I mean, I you know I did a quick look before the show, and the reporting is everywhere. Ten killed, seventeen killed. Um, you know, it, it, who knows? Um, it's all over the place. And you know, CENTCOM should be tell, should be giving as much much information as it can about this strike to to provide transparency. And sadly, we're just not seeing this anymore. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, across the board. There's no explanation from American leadership as to why they're fighting Al-Qaeda in these different places or why that's necessary. And so, you know, you know, I'm reminded too, when it comes to Syria, you know, you remember when the Horasan group, uh, part of Al-Qaeda, there was all sorts of confusion over what that was, you know, and it was right. just part of Al-Qaeda. It was a bunch of Al-Qaeda veterans. And there was all this crazy nonsense about, you know, oh, you know, what is the Horasan group? It's a new, new outfit that's outshining Al Qaeda in the Islamic State. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me, you know? Uh, you know, I mean, you guys. Not and it was separate it. from from the yeah. Al Nusra Front, right? Yeah. Oh, well, there's all sorts of nonsense. But you know, it's funny because you know, one of the guys who you know, you, you talk about sort of the, um, you know, the critics of the U.S. Um, military and intelligence establishment. You know, one of them, Glenn Greenwald, uh, you know, prolific writer. You know, when the Horasan group was targeted. He he indulged in that fantasy that this was just invented by the US to justify strikes in Syria, right? And I just thought, what a stupid argument that is. You know, first of all, the US is striking the Islamic State. They don't need a justification to go after anybody else. Second of all, um, you know, it's not why, you know, first second of all, the, the number of strikes against the Horasan group were minimal compared to the overall bombing yeah. campaign. So it wasn't like this was some big deal that they needed to roll out. Third of all, the guys who were targeted were all easily identifiable, unlike the guys who are now being targeted in Syria. We knew who the guys were being targeted back then in Syria, Musan al-Fadli, the Kuwaiti, and Sanafi al-Nazar, who was on Twitter openly openly proclaiming his desire to strike the U.S. I mean, did, these guys didn't exactly hide who they were or what they were do, you know, doing. Uh, you know, at least he didn't. Uh, other, guys, other guys did hide what they were doing. But, but we could identify who they were, and they were known al-Qaeda veterans. But this goes, this, this goes to show you know, that a certain part of the commentariat is always going to criticize this stuff, even when the evidence is clear. You can only you can only imagine how that becomes more and more of a problem when the evidence isn't clear at all as it is right now in Syria. Yeah, yeah exactly. And you know, Tom, my only critique of, of the strikes, particularly against the Khorasan group, was that there were too few and too far between. I mean, we knew there's an entire cadre there. 
uh, and, and not just leadership, but mid mid and low level leadership that was highly active, very linked into Al Qaeda's network that just we kind of let pass because well, we were just sort of blinking against this, them this, while this we were going to a bigger issue, though. I mean, Islamic the bigger State. issue here is with these even these these two recent strikes in, in Idlib is what does Al Qaeda look like in Syria right now? Yeah. Right? What does it look like? I don't think anybody I means there, there are people who comment on this stuff, analysts and, com- and commentators or anything. You know, the 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 hierarchy for Al Qaeda in Syria is muddled, right? Nobody really knows on the public on the outside what it looks like. And there needs to be an explanation from the US government as to what it looks like and, and why they're targeting certain parts of it and not others and who's you know, there needs to be some sort of explanation here and there is none. So um, you know, it, it, to me that's just all has to do with the, the confusion about all this stuff in twenty twenty and why People can throw their hands up in the air with the endless wars so-called narrative and say just, you know, they don't want to deal with it. Yeah, you know? yeah Tom, you know, you see people that, that have been supportive of our efforts in, in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria and everything. They've thrown up their hands. And, and I think some of this is just sort of naked politics. But some of this is just frustration of, of lack of understanding of what's happening. And some exhaustion. of it's ideological. I mean, some, yeah, growing, yeah, that's, growing that's, isolationist that's the sentiment. Yeah, growing yeah, isolationist sure. sentiment. You know, one quick thing on this, and then we should wrap up the episode uh, for this week. Here's the quick thing. So we're recording this one week or so, a little bit more than a week from the election, uh, the presidential election in the U.S., um, or one week from the election. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, I people have asked me, you know, what sort of what Joe Biden will do if he's elected in terms of Afghanistan or any of this stuff. And I think it's interesting, you know, there's, there's an, a point here where, first of all, I don't think Biden's going to send more forces to Afghanistan. He did, he was skeptical of a bigger deployment under Obama, and he doesn't really want to be there. And he's, he's criticized the so-called endless wars, too. But you can see in some of the press coverage that Biden has sort of left open the idea that he was going to have a sort of a, a smaller counterterrorism force in place in Afghanistan for some period of time. What's interesting about this is, if you think if you think it through— then if he wants to do that, then they'd have to basically nullify the deal with the Taliban, the Doha deal on February 29th of this year, which some of his advisors, I think, helped pave the way for, or at least people in those those circles did, um, you know, in the previous administration. And, you know, there, there are many, many good reasons to nullify that deal. And I was just thinking this through and thinking about this. Even if you just want to leave Afghanistan um, entirely, I think it's probably in the U.S. government's – and even if, if Biden or Trump does that, let's say, in the coming months, they just leave entirely – there are good reasons to nullify that deal. Um, you know, don't don't whitewash the Taliban and pretend like they're you know have broken with Al Qaeda unless there's real evidence that they've done that. If they haven't done that, even if, so, and again, even if you're just leaving, even if you're just going to leave Afghanistan, don't leave under the pretext of that deal. You know, and the, the interesting thing is though is that if Biden decides he wants to keep a, a rump force in Afghanistan for one reason or another, I think he probably they probably have to nullify that deal, and they're you know they're playing factual reasons to nullify it. It's it's perfectly logical and factual to nullify that agreement and say, look, the Taliban never held up its end of the bargain at all. That's easy. To, that's easy to show. Um, but whatever you want to decide, I would say they should probably nullify it. Could not agree uh, anymore, Tom. It's time to end this bad deal. Let's not legitimize the Taliban on the way out the door, and let's not absolve it for its crimes both prior to and after 9-11. So that was another cheery episode of Generation Jihad. Um, thank you to our audience for listening. Again, you, you get to you get to listen into our little therapy session here between Bill and myself on, on, this, on these issues. Uh, please do subscribe to the show. We're going to have guests in coming episodes here. In fact, we're going to record, a, hopefully, I think in the next week or so, we're going to record an episode with Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, who's going to be on the show as a guest. We're going to have a lengthy episode, hopefully, with him talking about 
all of this um, and, you know, and, and how he views American foreign policy and the 9-11 conflicts and everything today. Um, we have some other guests lined up for future episodes, so you don't just have to listen to Bill and I bitching at each other about this stuff. Uh, be a little more, a little more intellectual, a little more uh, thought provoking in future episodes. But uh, hopefully, you get something out of uh, listen to our therapy session. Um, as a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your shows. So you can go subscribe to us there, and we will see you again next week. <laughs>